0: Well, you recall that Frederick Beekner you may have heard me say that name from time to time? Frederick Beekner, actually, is still living, as far as I know, in uh, Kine- uh, no, Vermont, in the green mountains of Vermont. I wrote a letter to him once. He didn't reply, but that was probably busy. He's one of my favorites, and he always has a way of sparking my thought process. When I read this story for today between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, I was reminded of how Beekner described this meeting in an upbeat way, a more modern way, a way that is, uh, you know, some will find too offhand for their liking, but for me, it modernizes it. It puts it in a context that I can grasp more easily. Pilate has been on the phone talking to his wife. You see what I'm saying? When his wife finally hangs up, he swings back to his desk and he finds that he is no longer alone. They've brought the upcountry Messiah in for questioning. Pilate is caught off guard. And before he knows what he's doing, he takes a cigarette from an onyx box on his desk and lights it. He has been trying to quit. The man stands in front of the desk with his hands tied behind his back. You can see that he's been roughed up. His upper lip is absurdly puffed out and one eye is swollen shut. He looks unwashed, he smells unwashed. His feet are bare, big, flat, peasant feet, although the man himself is not big. There's something almost comic about the way he stands there, bent slightly forward because of the way his hands are tied and goggling down at the floor through his one good eye as if he's, as if he's looking for something he lost, maybe a, a button off his shirt or a, a dime somebody slipped him for a cup of coffee. If there were just the two of them, Pilate thinks, he would give this man his car fare and send him back to the sticks where he came from. But the guards are watching. And the official portrait of Tiberius Caesar is watching. The fat powdered face. The toothy imperial smile. So he goes through the formalities. So you're the king of the Jews, huh? Pilate asks. The man says, it's not this world that I'm king of. But his accent is so thick that Pilate hardly gets it. The accent together with what they've done to his upper lip. As if he has a mouthful of stones, the man says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. And at that, the procurator of Judea takes such a deep drag on his filter tip that his head swims and for a moment he's afraid he may faint. He pushes back from the desk and crosses his legs There's a papery rustle of wings as a pigeon flutters off the sill and floats down toward the cobbles. Cigarette smoke drifts over the surface of the desk, the picture of his wife when she still had her looks, the onyx box from Caesar, the clay plaque with the imprint of his first son's hand in it made while he was still a child in nursery school, Pilate squints at the man through the smoke and asks his question. He asks it half because he would give as much as even his life to hear the answer and half because he believes there is no answer and would give a great deal to hear that too because it would mean just one thing less to have to worry about. He says, What is truth? And by way of an answer, the man with the split lip doesn't say a blessed thing. Or else, his not saying anything, that is the blessed thing. You could hear a pin drop in the big high-ceilinged room with Tiberius grinning down from the wall like a pumpkin that one cigarette, a little unsteady between the procurator's yellowed fingertips. I see it. I see it all in my mind's eye through that description. Pilate has a philosophical conversation with the beaten-up Jesus about truth. Just one more verse on in our story for today, our gospel. One more uh, verse, and we hear that question. What is truth? But Jesus' life depends on the answer to the king question, even as our eternity may very well depend upon our answer to that king question. Is Jesus king of the Jews or anybody else? And if he is, how then do his subjects respond? If he isn't, then the question makes no difference. How would King Jesus' subjects respond to the violence wrought by teenagers and twenty-somethings in Paris as well as in Allentown? You read The Morning Call, Kids throwing teachers down the steps. There, cops saying to each other, "There's no authority." They they have absolutely no respect for authority. Well, not every child. These children who are who are doing this, who don't want to be called children, but they're children. ISIS is children. You look at their faces. They're kids who don't get it, and they've been misled deeply, badly. This is fodder for fearless conversation, it seems to me. Maybe Lord of the Flies should be read again by adults who had to read it in school to see how even educated children can descend into savagery Where do these children come from? How are they raised? Do they have any parental guidance? All questions to be wrestled with. And why, for heaven's sake, violence? At least one person has suggested that violence, at least within a group, is a search for belonging, albeit a perverted search. Individuals join gangs that perpetrate violence because of a need to belong. ISIS is an extended gang, mostly youth, who enjoy the power that fear exerts on others. They may not have developed a sense of conscience because of their early years, either without parents or with wayward ones. Since it's natural law that the strongest wins, violence makes that happen, frightening others into submission with threats or violating their humanity by beating or even killing them to show who is on top, who is the strongest. Violence has no respect for law, only personal will. It has no boundaries and recognizes no authorities. Violence is sin out of control. It is one person or group of people establishing control over others in any way they choose. Violence is the modus operandi, the method of operating of traditional kings and tyrants. Christ the King scorns violence He is a good shepherd who has compassion on his erring sheep, gently leading them back to the path. Christ the King is Emmanuel, God with us, God among us, our companion and guide. Christ the King is light of the world, shining in our darkness, showing us hope for better and brighter days. Kings were not known for loving their subjects. So Jesus confounded the people and Pontius Pilate as well. Jesus was anything but typical. And he would be king of the whole world, not just of the Jews or the Christians. Mighty bold claim. Mighty powerful promise. Jesus the good king is the one we worship today. He is the revealing of God, what God is really like, how God really thinks about people, you and me. Jesus, the good king, actually favors the outcast, the unfavored, the strange, the friendless. This we know from his track record in the Gospels. His track record with lepers and lame people and sinners. Jesus is the anointed one of God, or Christ, who was born to testify to the truth. Fred Beekner again, on the unusual king we worship today. If the world is sane, then Jesus is mad as a hatter and the last supper is the mad tea party. The world says mind your own business. Jesus says there is no such thing as your own business. The world says follow the wisest course and be a success. Jesus says follow me and be crucified. The world says drive carefully the life you save may be your own. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world says law and order, and Jesus says love. The world says get, Jesus says give. In terms of the world's sanity, Jesus is as crazy as a coot. And anybody who thinks he can follow him without being a little crazy, too, is laboring less under the cross than under delusion. We are fools for Christ's sake, the Apostle Paul says. Ultimately, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The lunacy of Jesus is saner than the grim sanity of the world. Friends, let us worship this unusual king all glorious above. Let's sing.